Hello, Penn Medicine. And welcome to the Well-Focused Podcast. I'm Mitch Sherman, and today I have Luke Oberman. Luke, how are you doing today? Good, Mitch. Good to be here with you. It's, it's, it's fun to get to be on your podcast. Yeah, I appreciate the time. Uh, listeners, if you don't know, uh, we used to, the Well-Focused team used to work with Luke a lot uh, with Limeade, and he is actually a full-time self-proclaimed well-being nerd, uh, which is probably the number one reason why I wanted to have him on the podcast as we are all well-being nerds on the podcast. But to dive a little deeper, Luke actually is an expert and has his master's from UPenn actually in um, applied positive psychology, which is a really interesting topic that we're going to dive into today. So Luke, let's get right into it. What is positive psychology? Man, that's a, you know, that's a loaded question, um, yeah. and it's got a, it's got a long history, um, even though I think it's only really entered, like, the popular lexicon maybe in the past, you know, 20 to 30 years or so. I guess at its core, when I explain it to people, I, I say it's the science of well-being. That's, like, the easiest really brief sound bite that I can give it, um, although it's it's slightly more complex than that, and I think, you know, it's it's probably worth when I have longer to explain it to people, understanding the history of where it comes from. You know, when, when we look at the science of well-being or, or happiness, you know, it's something that humans have been interested in forever, probably, right? You know, you get a dopamine rush and you're like, well, what's this great feeling? How can I <laughs> always feel this good or whatever? Um, and, you know, as, as with many concepts, especially in Western society uh, that, that we study, you can trace their roots back to the ancient Greeks, um, as as to when they 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 first saw these conversations and topics coming up, and sure enough, Aristotle is one of the first kind of ancient philosophers who you know began to look at you know what is what is well-being, what is happiness, and very early on with the ancient Greeks, a debate began to uh, take shape uh, about what is well-being and what constitutes living the good life. And Aristotle is on one side of that debate, and then there's a bunch of other philosophers that I don't know their names on the other side. And this dividing line became between two types of well-being. One is hedonic well-being, and one is eudaimonic well-being. Um, hedonic well-being is kind of what you would think of with the word happiness. It's positive emotions. It's it's positive affect. It's pleasurable feelings. And so a whole uh, you know a whole swath of people said that's 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 you know, well-being, that's, that's a life well-lived, right? You, you get, get hedonic well-being, get pleasure, get happiness, um, um, live hedonically. And Aristotle said, no, that's, that's, that's good, but that's not well-being. That's not a, a, a full life. There's, there's so much more that comes into that, right? Like what about purpose and, and, and having fulfillment? And, and, and he lumps this into eudaimonic well-being, which is more of kind of a sense of fulfillment. And Aristotle, in, in like, I think it was the, the Nicomachean ethics, he defined it as living a, a, an excellent life, living a virtuous life, which is basically, you know, he mapped out all of these different virtues and it is knowing in what context it is appropriate to use what virtue and using each of them at their appropriate mean, you know, not using too much of a virtue or too little of a virtue because then it becomes a vice, but living in balance with your virtues according to the context in which you operate. And that is living an excellent virtuous life, which leads, leads to a eudaimonic life. Um, and that was really the kind of the beginning of folks studying well-being, and it was more of a kind of a probably a, a philosophical fireside conversation for years um, until, you know, psychology really kind of broke into the, the scientific field in the last 100, 150, 200 years. And the first 
coined term, uh, positive psychology, was actually Abraham Maslow. Um, I believe he just threw it out there. I don't even actually know the reference. Very briefly, he was a humanist, I believe, was, was, what, was what he was in terms of psychology. And he, he threw out the term positive psychology in terms of psychology helping us to study the good life. Um, but it really still wasn't turned into a field until about the year 2000, so a little over 20 years ago. Um, and this is where, you know, Penn comes into play and, and, and more, you know, current figures come into play. Martin Seligman, and he is a professor at Penn, uh, he was elected the president of the American Psychology Association in, I think, 1998. And, you know, every, I'm pretty sure every, you know, president of the American Psychology Association has to, like, lay down their, you know, their agenda for the, for their term or whatever, right? They have to like have some big area that they're going to like direct psychologists to, to focus on over the course of their presidential term or whatnot. So, you know, Martin Seligman was thinking about well, what am I going to like, kind of, what, what's my like lens going to be during my term as president of the APA? And he started to think about the direction that psychology has been focusing on in the past, you know, hundred years and where it is and where it should go. And he realized that he realized that it had strayed a little bit from its original mission. Uh, when, when psychology was kind of first really developing as a science in the early 1900s, it had three original missions prior to World War II. One of them was, let's use psychology and, you know, to, to, to research and cure mental illness. Um, another one was, let's use it to make lives more fulfilling. And then a third was, let's use it to identify and nurture high talent in individuals. And, you know, what happened was World War II happened. Um, and, you know, further wars after that, too, the Vietnam War, et cetera. And people became, began coming back with PTSD, right, with pretty traumatic psychological experiences, all kinds of disorders, mental illnesses that they're experiencing. Um, and the U.S. government, you know, wanted to do something about that. I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's a real problem. And so the government and these bodies that hold, you know, grant money, uh, began began basically offering researchers tons of grant money if they were going to use their research to study mental illnesses, PTSD, things like that, so that they could, you know, cure them, right, and help these many of these soldiers who are returning from battle. And so what happens then, right, if you're a young psychologist and you're like, well, I'm setting off on my career here, I, I need to get funding for the research I want to do, I mean, you're going to have a much better chance of getting funding if you devote your research to mental illnesses, because that's where all the money was. Um, and, and, you know, as a byproduct of this very quickly, by the end of the 20th century, psychology as we knew it was mostly like, like therapists and diagnosing mental illnesses and curing mental illnesses. You know, you had a whole, we still do have a whole, you know, DSM diagnostic manual for all kinds of mental disorders and focusing on that. And that's great. I mean, that's really, really important work. Um, but Martin Seligman said, but, but we've just neglected the other two missions that psychology had, which is, I mean, in his address said, look, you know, we've, we've, we've done a great job of, as a psychological science of the first pillar here of curing mental illness, but we've kind of neglected these other two. And let's reorient psychology a bit towards the positive. You know, it is very noble and important to focus on uh, fixing the negative and removing that from people's lives, but it's, it's not the same to take somebody who's at like a negative five, really suffering, and get them to zero as it is to take somebody who's kind of at a zero and get them to five. And, and those are probably different sets of tools that we need in order to, to, to take someone's, you know, life from really struggling and suffering to kind of getting by and then from getting by to really flourishing. Um, and it's not like we need to, to neglect the negative, but let's also spend some time and effort and research on focusing on the positive and what makes life 
you know, living worthwhile. And, and that, you know, is really kind of, he, he released an article in, in 2000. It was, was Martin Seligman and, 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 and Mike Csikszentmihalyi who co-wrote this article in 2000 titled Positive Psychology and Introduction. And that was really, you know, the birth of the field in 2000. And since then, it has just taken off, not only in psychological science, you know, there are more and more degrees and official degrees in positive psychology, one of which, you know, I have from, from Penn, you know, so, so yeah, there's, it's more of an academic, just, it's just something grabbed hold, I think of like, you know, popular lexicon and just what people are thinking about. And it just really resonated with folks on the science of happiness, the science of well-being, And it is just, it's really just exploded. So that was a very, very long-winded answer on what is positive <laughs> psychology. <laughs> Yeah, and I really like the direction you went with it. You know, I think for starters, you saying that this is something that was philosophized years ago and has evolved into something that is now an educational resource for, you know, whoever seeks it out. Um, you know, I almost liken that to, you know, what I studied, which is exercise, fitness, movement, etc. And I hear stories, I'm, I'm a big basketball uh, fan, and I've heard stories of early mid 2000s NBA locker rooms would have, you know, beer and donuts and fast food in there. And now it's like, you know, it's water, it's Gatorade, it's whatever kind of beverage and food options are going to best heal you. And likening that to what you said, it's, it's taking things and evolving them as you can develop a science for it, which is super interesting to me. And something else you said that has actually been Kind of the top of my mind recently is is purpose and happiness and and what does that mean because you were talking about these philosophers and saying oh well like what about this what about that and you know i don't necessarily think that it's it's things are mutually exclusive and it's such a binary thing and what is purpose what is happiness and that that means a lot to a different uh, to a lot of different people whether it's career whether it's their personal lives, things like that. So, you know, how, how do you think this evolves into it being individualized person to person? That's such a, a great question. Um, and I think it's a massive challenge that psychology and positive psychology still experiences. You know, psychology is such an interesting science because it's, I, I think, a lot more subjective than, than, than many other hard sciences would be, you know, um, yeah. it's a lot easier to objectively define, measure and understand maybe, and I don't know, I'm not a biologist or chemist, but maybe those sciences as opposed to psychology, which is inherently each of our own subjective experiences. And, mm -hmm. and how am I supposed to tell you what makes you happy? And, and if you even are happy, how can I know that, you know, other than what you can, can subjectively describe? And I, and of course there is, you know, there are like biomarkers and, and there is like progress being made in neuroscience to be able to map areas of the brain that, that may correlate to happiness and positive emotions. So I think with time, we, we may better be able to measure and understand someone else's happiness. But so far, our best tool has been subjective questionnaires, right? right. That, that has been the primary tool of, of psychologists. And, and I think that that is super valuable because it, you know, who better to say, again, if, if they have well-being in their life, then the person who actually is subjectively experiencing that. But it, it presents a lot of, of limitations when you're then trying to, I don't know, present these findings and in, in really, you know, to a boardroom, for example, and all you have are these like subjective one to five surveys that you've got. And are they taken seriously? I don't know. It's, it's so subjective. Um, or when you're trying to, as you do with 
you know, the well-focused program at, at UPHS, UPHS when you're trying to, to kind of measure well-being for your whole population and then dive into that data, but it's so subjective and different reasons could be reflected in people's responses that you can't really tell. Um, it's really difficult. And I would say that measuring well-being on a certainly still a, a challenging area for positive psychologists. There are lots of different tools, um, but I, the, the, the single, I think like most used tool is um, Ed Diener's uh, Satisfaction with Life Scale, I believe, uh, which measures subjective well-being. And I'm pretty sure, and I could be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure it's just like three questions. It's like, how much positive affect are you feeling? One to five or something. How much negative affect are you feeling? You know, one to five. And then how satisfied are you with your life? One to five. And you basically like add together, you know, how much negative emotion do they have? How much positive emotion do they have? And how satisfied are they overall? And that gives you their overall life satisfaction score. And it is like the number one most reliable <laughs> predictor of well-being. And it's just those three questions. And, and people are going to answer those two people can have the same answer, but for wildly different reasons. Right. And, and so then you've got, people who are then measuring all sorts of different facets of well-being and trying to drill into different areas like, well, do you feel purpose or do you feel relate, you know, how are your relationships or how's your physical health or, or, or how much just like kind of joy and dopamine and happiness are you feeling in your life? And all of these can mean different things to different people. And one person can really just need one area to feel full and then feel have high well-being. Um, but another person can get that from a totally different area. And so then it, then it really becomes a matter of, yeah, honing in on each individual and understanding what's important to them and how you can improve those areas in their lives. And, and that's what makes it so difficult. I don't know if that fully answered your question, but. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there was one answer to that question as there's not one answer to any of the questions that a positive psychologist might ask. Um, but, and, and you know, it's something that you said maybe a little over 20 years ago, you know, it's obviously very, very early on and, you know, the formal science-based aspect of this. So a lot of these questions might not be answered for a long time, but that's why there's people like you and others that are, that are doing the work for it. But, but yeah, and, and I think that is a good reminder for us, for people, for listeners, that because of these subjective responses, it's really important to, to know that feelings, whether they're yours or others, are never really invalid. You know, maybe situations vary depending upon dynamics of them, but a subjective response is a subjective response. You can't tell somebody like, no, that's not right. Boardroom looking at empirical data. So that's definitely something interesting as a, as a takeaway when talking about positive psych. You're so right. It's such an interesting area when, you know, for psychologists to be aware of when they're researching emotions and really researching positive psychology. And there's been fallout and there's been blowback that gotten in terms of being almost you know, just too rosy eye, just, just, just focusing solely on the positive or whatever. And that there needs to be room for negative emotions. And, and, you know, I, I also kind of wonder, right? Like the, the more that we, the more we study positive psychology and how to in, increase positive emotions in your life or, 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 or live lives that are more fulfilling or live lives that are, that, that have more happiness. Well, then you have all these tools and then you almost feel more pressure to, because you have all these tools, be able to be happy and be able to have all these positive emotions. And then all of a sudden you feel more shame or, or frustration when you're experiencing negative emotions. And all of a sudden those are no longer okay to experience because you were given this tool set to be happy and like, what's going on? And, and, and there's been a whole like wave of, I don't know if it's a backlash or not, but people saying, no, like negative emotions are super valid too. And they're super important. And let's not mistake positive psychology for saying we should only have positive emotions. Um, and I don't think that like any real positive psychologist would say that that's what they're saying, right? Like positive psychology was founded saying like, hey, 
psychology is mostly focusing on negative emotions right now, we should also focus on positive. And both are needed and both are good. Um, but, but, and so quickly people think are just trying to only make it be about happiness, be about positive emotions. And um, that's a trap that is, is not what they're trying to do. And also we should try not to fall into ourselves. Um, because our negative emotions have a purpose. Our, our negative emotions are like evolved, adaptable traits that, that absolutely serve a purpose and help us get us out of bad situations, get us out of ruts, make changes, whatever. And our positive emotions also serve a purpose. And if we, if we somehow convince ourselves that we need to always stay positive or we're even capable of that, then all of a sudden we'll start running from our negative emotions. And I, I think that creates a whole additional slew of problems. Right. Yeah. This can go in a number of different directions. <laughs> yeah. and, and I do like what you said about that because um, we actually put on a presentation called Finding the Silver Lining or Not. And it talks all about toxic positivity, which is obviously a whole other conversation we can go on. Uh, Emily and I, Emily McPeak, uh, did a present or a podcast on toxic positivity mm. too. So I won't get too repetitive, but it does talk about that only being positive you know what's the saying that's all over the internet all the time positive vibes only or something oh yeah or good vibes only yeah 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 and you know it, it it looks nice in an instagram story or something but it's it's not realistic and you know with positive psych you know being equipped with the tools and resources so that if you are in a situation that's less than ideal it, it does drive you in the positive direction even if it's not bringing you to a objectively positive place if it's a subjectively positive place then that's a, a good place to be too absolutely and, and you know it is kind of interesting you know what research is out there um around kind of like trying to pursue happiness or pursue you know i, I don't know if i wouldn't call positive psychology happiness i think positive psychology is a set of research and tools that allow us to determine like well-being in people's lives, so build systems that help other people achieve well-being. But there's research that shows, for example, and I think that the researchers' names are like Tamir and, and Mouse, that the more people value happiness, um, the less happy those people tend to be. Um, so people who value happiness more end up being less happy. Um, they, they also showed that like people who you know, explicitly are striving for happiness, like they, they, they make experiencing happiness or experiencing positive emotions an overt goal. Um, that tends to directly counteract that goal um, because let's say let's say for example your goal was you know something else like like let, let me be a good violin player or something right like you're naturally going to experience ups ups and downs along that journey right like some days for whatever reason you'll really be mastering your scales or, or whatever um, and then you know other days you may just have an off day and you, you you know you'll feel like you've taken half a step back and you know of course you'll get frustrated when that happens but getting frustrated doesn't in itself make you a worse violin player. However, if you're explicitly trying to be happier, some days you will be happier and you'll feel good along that goal. And then some days, naturally, you just won't feel as happy. And then you'll be mm -hmm. frustrated with that. And that'll explicitly take you further from that goal. And so you're constantly monitoring where you are, constantly feeling like you're not that close enough. And that act is constantly pulling you yet, yet again, further away from your goal. And um, it's really interesting research that says, you know, I can, let me try to be happy often counteracts itself. And sure enough, um, there's this idea too um, of the inverted you, which is just that, uh, and like and Schwartz and uh, like uh, Barry Schwartz, who's also in Pennsylvania, he's at Swarthmore University, and Adam Grant, who's at UPenn, they wrote a cool essay called "Too Much of a Good Thing," which basically shows how, like, yeah, you know, too much of any positive emotion, it, it honestly becomes counterproductive and starts to like lead to less happiness or less positive emotion. And 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 finally, there's this idea 
among positive psychologists and psychologists in general, I think, called the hedonic treadmill, which is a research defect that basically shows that people tend to have a relatively stable level of happiness or well-being in their in their life, and um, certain things can give them momentary boosts of well-being or or knock them off track and 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 drop it down. But most people kind of just return to that that same state of well-being that is their baseline. And this is true for like major things like, and I, I believe this has been measured and studied, although I don't have the studies to cite them, but it's, it's true of major things like winning the lottery and folks who win the lottery end up returning back to the same baseline level of happiness that they were at. And it's true of like pretty horrific things like you know, uh, becoming paralyzed or losing a limb or whatever. Um, and of course it, that's, that people's well-being tends to take a big knock, but ultimately their subjective self-assessments of their well-being come back to baseline. And that's pretty telling in terms of, yeah, you know, th this stuff is important. No doubt it can improve our lives and, and, and improve our well-being, and it's good to know. And also, we'll tend to, you know, let's not get caught up thinking that we can, I don't know, maybe make our lives a paradise or chase this to unending happiness because we tend to come back to baseline. Yeah, happiness is, it's like this fleeting emotion. And if you're constantly chasing a fleeting emotion, one, it's no longer fleeting, but it's also, you know, unrealistic to constantly be in that state of euphoria. Uh, if you were to ask somebody, where's your happy place? Oh, my happy place is on the beach. My happy place is watching my kid's soccer game or something. You're not gonna be able to go to the beach all year round, at least not in Philadelphia. Um, yeah. Your kid's soccer season might only last a few months and maybe they play once a week. So, you know, obviously there's going to be other sources of happiness in your life, but what are you going to do in those in-between phases when you're not in your quote-unquote happy place? So I think, like you said, being able to find that baseline of just being content, you know, content can just kind of be whatever. You're not feeling down. You're not feeling amazing. Um, if somebody's going through a depression or feeling severe anxiety about something, maybe a great day for them is, hey, I didn't feel down today. They didn't necessarily feel overwhelmingly happy, but they didn't feel so down. And that's a huge win and provides that subjective perspective as we were touching on earlier. I absolutely agree. You know, one of the more of a unique way to approach kind of happiness and well-being but I really like it. And it actually really didn't, didn't resonate with me for some reason when I first learned about it. But more recently, it's just like resonates more and more and more with me. And it's concept of flow. Um, and it's, it's by Mike Csikszentmihalyi. So Mike Csikszentmihalyi uh, is, is considered one of the founders of positive psychology along with Martin Seligman. They were the two who wrote that essay that I mentioned earlier in the year 2000 that basically said positive psychology in, in introduction. Um, and actually, Mike Shazamihai, unfortunately, he passed away just this past month, um, oh, I, I, I believe. Um, but, but he is an absolutely huge figure in terms of his contributions to the field. And he researched flow long before uh, the year 2000 when, when positive psychology was, was founded. Um, but part of the reason he was a founder is because kind of his work had always kind of been in this vein. And, you know, I don't want to, gosh, I don't want to get this wrong, but, 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 but I, I believe that you know, he kind of came of age in the World War II era in a really traumatic time. And, and he noticed as a kid that, you know, with all this uncertainty around the future and, and these, you know, anxiety-inducing events that were going on globally, you know, he found his peace when he was playing chess. Um, and he also noticed that that peace would not, you know, be nearly as stable when he was playing 
against somebody who who was far worse than him because it would take so little brain power that he, he could still kind of dwell in his anxious thoughts. And it also, he wouldn't feel quite as at peace when he was playing against people who were way better than him because they would just smash him and it wasn't fun at all. But when he was playing a chess game against someone who equally mastered his, you know, was equally matched, an equally matched opponent, everything else, you know, all the other stressors of the world would just fade away. And he ended up devoting his career uh, to, by and large, to studying this, this state of mind, which he termed flow, which is when you enter a state where basically all of your concentration is focused on the task at hand and all of your attention is concentrated on that task, the rest is gone. There's no room for anxious thoughts or what, what have you, right? Like you are so immersed in the moment, you are flowing. And, and, and he studied this, he asked people where they experience flow and what it feels like. And he hadn't turned it flow yet, but, but it actually became the term for this, this state of attention because many people kind of lacked the words to describe it, but, but often described it in a way that just felt like you're flowing, right? You're just like mm. caught in the current. You're just you're, you're just one with the moment and you're flowing and, and that's what it is. And and he basically characterized it as you are doing something where your ability matches the challenge at hand. So if you're in a situation where the challenge at hand is greater than your personal ability to meet it, that's just super stressful, right? Like that's overwhelming and that's you're not going to flow. You're just going to get burnt out or stressed or whatever. And similarly, when you're in a situation where your ability far exceeds the challenges presented to you at hand, well, that's super disengaging and, and allows you, your mind to just have anxious thoughts and wander all over the place. But when you're in the situations where the challenge at hand is perfectly matched by your ability to meet it, you enter flow state because it takes all of your concentration to be present, to be in this state. Um, and he devoted his career to it. And, you know, I think it's such a good definition for well-being. It's, it's not this subjective definition of, you know, how happy are you? Or what's the well-being in your life? It's more of, are you in this moment? Like, are you locked in? And when you're locked in the moment, you know, seldom are you, there's no room to like be freaking out about whatever else is going on, right? That, that may be negative. And I, I think it's a really cool conceptualization of well-being. Yeah, I really like that. I don't know if I've ever heard that put in that same context, but I really do like it. And, you know, locking in, I think is a great term as well for, for what you described. And I think finding something that creates that opportunity for somebody to, you know, have that fit, that's hard. And I, I mean, I do think it's worth pursuing, but it is definitely difficult. And, you know, obviously we're, we're talking to UPHS employees here and, you know, there's a lot of important careers at UPHS and there's a lot of people that, and, you know, outside of UPHS as well, you know, it, that is definitely something to aspire to, but it's also, does that align with career goals? Is that align with where you find purpose? You know, what you're doing? Are you able to get into that flow kind of state? Um, it's definitely something interesting to think about. And, you know, maybe there isn't an answer for everybody right off the top of the head, but yeah, definitely something to digest. Yeah, that's a great point. And um, again, in my mind, at least, there's always this dichotomy between you know, what are we able to do ourselves? What are we able to control ourselves, both in terms of our environment and also like our, how, how mentally we approach a given situation? Certainly we have some control in most situations, um, but then also what's beyond our control and kind of we're not able to, 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 to change that, right? So there, there are certainly like jobs that we're in where it's just, it's just gonna be difficult to enter flow state in those given jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and, and let's not like take on the burden that, that like, 
oh, well, you're just, you just don't have the mental fortitude to be able to get there, right? Like, come on, you know? Um, and, and I think that that is, like, that, that is like something, again, a, just a dangerous area for positive psychology. Like, it can't solve everything. It, like, like, it shouldn't be used as this thing where it's like, now you have the tools to, to, to get your mind there. Why can't you, right? Like, no, no, not at all. Um, but, it, you know, it does give us a tool set that may be more applicable than we might have otherwise thought. You know, like, I, I've read examples of how to sit through a really boring meeting that, like, I really have no interest in being there. That's going to be pretty hard for me to enter flow state. Um, and then I've read about examples of, well, maybe there are ways that I want to learn to be a better public presenter. And I can use that meeting that I do not care about to actively take notes on how the person who's presenting is doing things well or doing things wrong and use that to like create a, a list of guidelines for myself on how I want to be a, a presenter and learn, right? And that's a lot going to get me a lot closer to being in a flow experience because I'm now actively engaging in some capacity than just checking out and not caring about the meeting. So, you know, I, I do think there are opportunities for us to focus on aspects of situations that may provide you know, more chance for flow. And also, I don't mean that to say that, you know, there aren't just situations where good luck, right? It's just going to be really, really difficult. Like, it's just, it's just a crappy meeting or a crappy job or whatever. Um, and that's also where folks like the well-focused team and other um, teams at, at UPHS can dive into to kind of help structure jobs in such a way that, that bring more of those opportunities. I love that you said that because it kind of ties me into this thought I've had recently and kind of a direction I would like to, to take this. Um, and it's about, you know, creating this space for people to reach that level of contentness. I almost said level of happiness, but talking about career goals, for example, I remember when I was in second or third grade and being asked in school, where do you want to be when you grow up? And every time I was asked this, it was always based upon career, doctor, lawyer, construction worker, firefighter, anything, you name it. But it was always based on career and it, there was never really... I mean, you could have opted to take this route if you wanted, but it was more not encouraged to say things like, oh, what if I wanted to be a good dad? What if I wanted to be a good friend? What if I wanted to be a traveler? And, you know, obviously those things don't always go hand in hand with your career, but being able to find a career that you can find that level of contentness. Maybe it's not, you know, maybe you're not a doctor. Maybe you're not waking up at 4 a.m. and doing that quote-unquote morning grind, but you're doing something that you don't dislike, and it's supporting you and your life goals. And I think that is also what's important about finding fit, finding in a way you can look at your job in a different way, sort of as you're looking at a meeting in a different way if you're not totally checked in. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so important, and, you know, boy, is that not something I struggle with like every day, right? And I, I think probably lots of people do, you know, we're, so it's so drilled into us, as you said, at an early age, what are you going to be? What are you going to be? What are you going to do? And that, that has to be like some career you know, or, or job that, that all of a sudden it's easy for us to enter into these existential crises of, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can't be happy unless I know what I'm doing. And I think that Certainly our jobs are a place that we spend 40 hours of our lives, if not more, which is no small matter. And, and hopefully, you know, it's it's something that isn't detracting from our well-being at the very least. And, and, and it's wonderful if you can find a way to uh, uh, to use your job to really bring well-being and meaning and purpose into your life. And um, I think it's important for us not to 
make that the only way you can have well-being. I, I think it's perfectly okay for your job to just be a job, and then you can get that well-being and that meaning from so many other areas in your life. And I, and I, I don't know, you know, but I, I, I have some hope that kind of we're seeing that shift. Um, mm -hmm. You know, whether it's like the Great Resignation or whatever from the pandemic, and, and like all this, you know, I, I think people are starting to, to to be like, wait, why am I trying to like? throw myself at this job to get well-being, right? Like a job can just be a job and, and there's so many other areas of life that are actually going to fulfill me more. And, and, I, and, I, and I think and I hope that we're beginning to normalize finding all other areas of life that, that can be used as kind of who you are and, and how you define yourself and your identity. Exactly. Identity, I think, is, is the word that I was going to use too. be, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, your identity doesn't necessarily need to be your career. Um, but, you know, when we talk about finding energy, finding, you know, positive feelings. When I when I wrap up these podcasts, I like to ask uh, my guests a fun question pertaining to the topic or not. So Luke is based in Austin, Texas. I've been to Austin once. And the thing that stuck out to me and something that I got a lot of positive emotions from were tacos. <laughs> uh, so this is not pertaining to the topic, obviously. But I wanted to ask Luke, uh, in Austin, what is your go-to taco? Like, what? How would you make your go-to taco in Austin? How would I make it? <laughs> yeah, what are the ingredients? This is a great question. You know, I'm more of a. I get to a taco joint. Let's say we're we're talking about torchies or you know some other Tyson's or some other. Austin staple and it's going to be so mood dependent man I'm going to look at the menu and I'm probably going to get three tacos and I'm probably <laughs> going to get like as diverse a, fl a flavor profile across all three that I can um, I'm somebody where if I'm at a restaurant and I, I like to be the last to order because if somebody else orders the thing that I was going to order, even if I really wanted it, I've got to switch my order. Cause I, I like, cause hopefully I'll get a bite of everybody's and I just want to try as many flavors as possible. So yeah. I love Austin style tacos cause they're always really funky. They got a, a just some random allotment of ingredients on them. And I'm going to try to just get three very distinct ones. <laughs> yeah, that's a good answer. I'm probably the same way. And I did grab torchies on my way to the airport when I left. So that was, that was definitely on top of the list of things we needed to do, even though it was, I guess, the last thing we did. Um, but Luke, really appreciate the time. This has been an incredible conversation that I've had a lot of fun with and gotten a lot out of. Um, so I thank you again for being here. Oh, yeah, Mitch, I had a blast. Thanks for having me on.